Hey, I'm really glad you're joining me. If this is your first time, I personally welcome you with an electronic hug. If you've been part of my program before, then I welcome you with two electronic hugs. With this program, I seek to help us gain spiritual victory over life's issues. I'm all about helping us truly live the Christian faith and experience all the victory and authority and power Jesus intends us to demonstrate. We are the ones he is charged with the great commission of Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, to be the change agents in this world. And I'm sure you'd agree we need a lot more of God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last week, in light of Hosea 4.6, we explored our knowledge of God and his will so we can position ourselves to receive all God has for us. We are learning how to get ourselves ready and prepared so we can beseech God for his promises and see the results of our faith. When we persevere in the faith, when we contend in the faith, we demonstrate the depth of desire and belief we have to acquire what God has promised. To set the stage for a proper understanding, here's a profound statement that I heard come out of my mouth years ago. Ready? Okay, here it is. God's love is unconditional, but his promises aren't. Let me repeat that. God's love is unconditional, but his promises aren't. There's nothing we can do to earn God's love or to diminish God's love. However, when it comes to the promises God has revealed he wants us to have, there is most always a condition. I say most always because there are very few promises God has made that require nothing from us, such as the promise of Christ's second coming. That will happen regardless of what we say, believe, or do. But most of God's revealed promises for us require our involvement. To receive any of God's conditional promises means we must first know him. And last week we explored Hosea 4.6, which states, My people perish for lack of knowledge. And the Hebrew word for knowledge in that passage is yada. This kind of knowledge is much more than a mental ascent. It's an intimate, abiding, experiential knowledge. It is a knowledge that we must continue to add to as we seek to know God more and more. For this reason, today's program is an extension of last week's, in which we'll also start to explore what it means to contend in the faith. Before I get into that, I do want to thank those of you who have been emailing me or connecting with me on social media. I love the personal connections, and I ask you to please feel free to contact me. I'll gladly answer any question or reply to your comments. I very much want to have all these topics on my podcast be the things that you want to have addressed. And so far, you've encouraged me that I'm right on task. Now, a little bit about contending for the faith. Jude 3 in the ESV version states, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In context, Jude was writing to encourage Christians to intentionally struggle against, oppose, and resist anything that is contrary to the truth of our faith. This is something very important for us to understand, especially in the times we are living. We cannot afford to be glib or simplistic about our assured victory in Christ. God's promise for our victory is conditional upon our personal effort to be diligent soldiers in his army. In other words, God's promise of victory doesn't mean that we don't have to fight to win. Although Christ has done everything to assure our victory, the battle still rages. 
It's more evident this year than any other time in our life that the devil is raging and at work, seeking to devour and destroy anything and everything he can. If we don't contend for our promised victory, we will experience needless casualties and interim defeats. John Piper says it this way, Just because the brilliant commander-in-chief promises victory on the beaches doesn't mean the troops can throw their weapons overboard. The promise of victory assumes valor in the battle. When God promises that his church will be kept from defeat, his purpose is not that we lay down our sword and go out to lunch, but that we pick up the sword of the Spirit and look confidently to God for the strength to fight and win. Wherever the promised security of God is used to justify going AWOL, we may suspect there is a traitor in the ranks. So God's way, as we see it in Jude, is to give his people confidence that their faith will be victorious in the end. Jude verses 1 and 24, and then to send them out to fight for it. John Piper's words and this podcast should be shared with every professing Christian who looks at the events in our world today and states, well, this is just what the Bible has to say about the end times. We may as well accept it. These are the words of those who are A-W-O-L in the battle, and we are still in the battle. The same ones I asked last week to get out of our way while we take our rightful place in God's kingdom plan. Technically, we've been in the last days since Jesus' ascension. Study of the end times is known as eschatology. Scholars differ greatly about what end times will be like and which nations and more will be major players. But one position I see more and more people taking concerning the end times I call exitology. They're giving up. They're giving in to the hardships of this present day battle and basically pulling the covers up over their head and going AWOL. This is not faith. This is fear. And if this describes you, please listen carefully to this program and to the next program to learn how, as a Christian, you are assured the victory to the degree you remain in the battle. Daniel, an Old Testament faithful servant of God's, had a dream about very disturbing wars. He immediately prayed, seeking understanding of the dream. He prayed and fasted for 21 days, and then an angel that had been dispatched from the day Daniel began praying showed up in Daniel's presence. The angel explained because he had been opposed by the prince of Persia, another angel, Michael, one of the chief heavenly angels, was sent to help, which is why it took the angel 21 days to come in answer of Daniel's prayer. We can read about that in Daniel's chapters 10, verses 1 to 14. The angel explained the dream of wars was for a time yet to come, a time in the future. Could the vision of war Daniel was given be for the times we are living in? Could Daniel's vision be prophecy intended by God to help us be properly engaged and contend for the faith in the battle we're in today? Remember, what occurs on earth first takes place in the second heaven. A quick explanation of the three realms of heaven. There is the first heaven, which is the atmosphere on earth. The second heaven is the spiritual realm where heavenly angels and demonic angels can operate. The third heaven is the holy heaven where God resides. What occurs in the second heaven in the spiritual is played out in our natural world. Our natural world is directly impacted by events in the spiritual world or second heaven as directed by God from his holy heaven 
and as impacted by the prayers of the saints. Back to Daniel's vision. First, note that scholars don't agree on the interpretation of Daniel's vision, except that it is prophecy for the future events leading up to God creating a new heaven and a new earth. So plan on doing your own study in light of what I'm about to share. The vision Daniel was given was identified by the angel to be for a time in the future, and we are most definitely people living at a future point from the time of Daniel. The angel explained to Daniel about the opposition he encountered trying to reach Daniel simply to explain the vision to Daniel. He said he was opposed by the prince of Persia, but that there was another, greater one yet to come who will accomplish every evil thing he intends to do. Daniel chapter 11 verses 3 and 4. So I read Daniel's vision being explained by the angel first with an overall synopsis in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11, then followed by a detailed explanation of the end-time events with the remainder of the chapter 11 through chapters 12, verse 13. Now, in the middle of all that detailed explanation, the angel says some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. That's Daniel 11.35. This verse is to provide reassurance to the saints in the midst of a long succession of horrific events that are being explained. It's to reassure us that God's plan will prevail. And again, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, the angel explains, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Again, another reassurance in the midst of the explanation of the vision of the war. I don't believe we're at the end of the end times. I do believe we are at the beginning of the end times, consistent with Jesus' prophecy in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 to 8, when he explains about the various evil atrocities that will occur, and then he states these things must happen and are simply the birthing pains. In other words, just the beginning. We are clearly in a battle, and we must learn how to contend in the faith, or we will be needlessly harmed and suffer in many ways that we shouldn't because of the victory Jesus has already fought and won. In order for us to successfully contend in the faith, we must have a clear and unwavering understanding of all Christ accomplished and who we are in him. As Jesus taught his disciples how to live according to their new identity in Christ under the leading of the Holy Spirit, so must we be taught. When we live by the Spirit, we demonstrate a higher authority in the natural world. The spiritual world is a higher existence than the natural world. So to live led by the Holy Spirit means to live in a higher realm, a realm that has authority over both the natural realm and the demonic world. As Christians, we are to walk by faith, not by sight, right? Well, this is one reason why I spend so much time exploring the topic of faith. I want us to be sure we truly understand the depths and potential of a pure and rightly placed faith. One woman who posted a review for my first book in my Faith to Live By series expressed, quote, At first, the book comes off as a woman who thinks way too much about faith. I just don't think God wants it to be that complicated, end quote. And I wholly agree with her. God doesn't want it to be complicated. He wants our understanding or our application of faith to be correct. And this is precisely why I spend a considerable amount of time and attention to the topic of faith. 
As I see it, many of us don't have a proper understanding of faith. And as we considered last week, according to Hosea 4.6, God's people perish for lack of knowledge. And that would include knowledge about faith. How many times have you either said yourself or been told, quote, if you just had enough faith, your prayers would be answered? Well, that expression is evidence of a wrong understanding of faith. When Jesus spoke of having faith the size of a mustard seed being sufficient to move mountains, he clearly revealed the quantity of faith is not the issue. A mustard seed is very small. It's not how much faith we have, but how pure and how right our faith is, regardless of the size. Add just one smidgen of doubt, fear, unbelief, or misinformation to our faith, and it is entirely tainted. Jesus is our example, and it is very important for us to realize Jesus laid aside his deity to take on human form. Although he was both fully God and fully human, he chose to limit himself to live entirely out of his humanity. He learned as a child about God from a human perspective. He experienced the process of discovering truth the same way you and I do. And when the time was right, according to God's plan, before Jesus officially started his earthly mission, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit when he was with John the Baptist at the River Jordan. We read about this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, Mark 1, 1 through 11, Luke 3, 21 to 24, and John 1, 30 to 34. It's vital to note when God repeats something in scriptures, it's because it's important for us to properly understand. We have four accounts of Jesus' baptism. What we read from all four accounts is Jesus, in his humanity, was given the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. He was given this power so that he could fully accomplish his earthly mission in his humanity. So it is for us. In and of ourselves, we are merely natural beings subject to this natural world. But when we are born again and we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then we are imbued with the power to fulfill our personal mission in God's kingdom on earth. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking Jesus did all the miraculous things he did because he was fully God. If Jesus had done anything in his earthly life calling upon his deity, he couldn't be a suitable sacrifice in our place. Neither could he be our example. No, he had to live identical to our existence in order to be our substitutional sacrifice and to be our example of how we can live in a supernatural spiritual authority in this natural world. Jesus experienced the Holy Spirit come upon him the moment he was baptized by John. We see this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. He taught his disciples about the kingdom of God being at hand and how the kingdom of God has authority and power over the dark powers of evil. Understand, Jesus lived in the days of the Old Testament. The New Testament didn't exist until after his resurrection. So in the same way, the prophets of the Old Testament would occasionally have the Holy Spirit come upon them to prophesy God's anointing, so it was the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and the disciples when they were able to perform miraculous works during Jesus' lifetime. Very few people, if any, in the Old Testament were filled with the Holy Spirit. Enoch seems to have been one, though we can't be sure. Remember, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the power from on high. Jesus instructed them to be in the right place at the right time to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then they would be equipped to do the miraculous works in Jesus' name. 
The Holy Spirit baptism of believers occurred on the day of Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The distinction between the Old Testament deposit of the Holy Spirit in contrast to the New Testament indwelling is important for us to understand and properly believe. We need to have a clear understanding and ownership of believers being indwelt by the Holy Spirit because the spirit world is real. Both holy and evil spirits exist. The power and authority believers have is essential for us to understand in order to properly draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember the story of the seven sons of a Jewish high priest trying to invoke the name of Jesus to command evil spirits to leave a man. Well, Acts chapter 9 verses 13 to 18 explains because they were not born again in Christ, they didn't have the power or authority to do what they were attempting. Verse 16 reveals, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. We need to confidently embrace both the spiritual authority and power that Jesus demonstrated if we are to successfully demonstrate our faith and experience supernatural results. Remember, it was after Christ's resurrection that he instructed his disciples according to Matthew 28, 18-20, where we read, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus gave his disciples the authority to do as he instructed in this particular moment after his crucifixion and before he ascended. Ever since that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was released upon and within Christ's disciples, those who place their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord are instantly transformed and given a new spirit that never before existed, holy and able to communicate with God. We are also given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the same time. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is given as a deposit or a guarantee of all that is yet to come, which is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Those of us who place our faith in Christ in the New Testament era are given both Christ's authority and power by the indwelling Holy Spirit the day we submit ourselves to Jesus as Lord. Once we place our faith in Jesus, we are made spiritually new. We are spiritually born again. And at that moment, we have both the authority and the power to do Christ's will. The transformation of our spirit is done for us by God through our faith in Christ. There are just two remaining problems. We are still stuck with our fleshly body and our carnal minds. As scriptures instruct, from our newly born again state, we need to apply ourselves to gain godly knowledge. We need to be renewed by the transforming of our minds. Once our minds come into alignment with godly knowledge, then our behavior and our actions of our body will follow. It's a process. It's a cooperative process. Becoming renewed in mind and body is not something that's done for us. It's a process that we must enter into with the cooperation and the help of the Holy Spirit, which means only according to the degree we cooperate will our minds and bodies be renewed. As surveys reveal, 25% of people who call themselves Christians are not born again. They have neither authority or power. They are just Christian in namesake only. An additional 25% are born again, and while they have both the power and authority, they have not yielded themselves to the mind-body transformation of the Holy Spirit. So they are entirely ineffective and experience life little, if any, different than those who are not born again. 
The next 25% are born again and actively seek to be transformed in every way. Yet only 7 to 9% of these are actually successful. This means the corrupt world in which we live is seeing precious little of the miracle working power of Jesus and the restraining influence of the church against sin is minimal. Again, Hosea 4.6 reveals God's people perish for lack of knowledge. And as we explored last week, the word for knowledge in Hebrew is the word yada. To have yada is to have a reverent and experiential, deep abiding relationship with God. It's to have our hearts extremely sensitive and responsive to God. It's to see and hear what the Father sees and hears and respond on earth with His will as it's done in heaven. I know everyone interested in listening to this podcast wants to experience more of both Christ's authority and power, so let's get cooperating with the Holy Spirit. First, consider authority. A policeman has the authority to arrest you for violating the law. But that's as far as his authority goes. The power for enforcing the law to bring justice is given to judges. In our Christian life, we have the authority of Christ because he's given it to us. We have all authority we need to arrest the enemy of God and the effects of sin. We also have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. But unless we are properly knowledgeable, think again of the word yada, we won't fully appropriate the power available to us. As a result, the fullness of justice will not be manifest. God is the judge, so if we have developed our knowledge of God, again, think yada, then we will mirror the will of the Father on earth. Jesus is our example. Jesus clearly explained he did nothing except what the Father revealed he wanted done. He saw and heard the Father, then he spoke and declared what the Father revealed. This kind of power comes from a proper yada with God. If you've just joined me, you're listening to Faith to Live By, and I'm your host, Pam Christian. The health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine has gratefully realized its errors and has made some good course corrections. Once known as the name it, claim it gospel, people were taught that they could simply decree and declare a matter and expect it to come to pass. The error was when people decreed and declared matters that the Father had not revealed he wanted to take place. If we name it and claim it, there's no reason to believe it will come to pass, even if the desire is consistent with God's overall character, will, and intentions. The matter of timing and the hearts of other people are two issues we don't know on our own. We may know about God's general will for us to prosper and be healthy and so on, but the matter of timing and the hearts of other people are two issues we don't know on our own. But what is needed is for our decrees and our declarations to be consistent with the specific revelation from God. And by the way, I found a great resource online about scriptural authority that we have for decreeing and declaring, which I'll post in the show notes. It's true, Christ's life, death, and resurrection have overcome all the effects of sin, including the evil, until the fullness of time. We need to learn how to effectively fight the battle from Christ's victory to expand God's kingdom on earth and push back the work of the enemy. We need to be dressed for battle with the full armor of God, which we can read about in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, and we need to be properly trained. We have the power and authority with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but again, we're stuck with our minds and our bodies, which need to embrace the training of boot camp and then advanced training for the rest of our lives. Just as Jesus said he never did or anything without first seeing or hearing the Father's instructions, so should it be for us. 
I do believe we are to pray and decree and declare according to God's general revelation with great hope and optimism. General revelation includes the promises offered, such as salvation by faith, healing by Christ's stripes, overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and to be prosperous in this life on earth. But when God provides a specific revelation, say a particular type of healing he wants to perform in a particular situation, and we decree and declare that, then we will see the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit with the miraculous in the same way Jesus exampled. I asked one pastor years ago about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, also known as name it and claim it doctrine. The way it was practiced then just didn't sit right with me. People were deciding for themselves what they wanted, then decreeing and declaring it to manifest. If Jesus didn't do anything without first hearing from the Father, then we sure shouldn't do anything any different. The pastor's answer helped me a great deal. She said, If we name it, we're foolish to claim it. But if God names it, we're foolish not to claim it. I read a recent post from a prophet named Lana Bowser. You might know about her. And this particular post deeply resonated with my spirit and offered some affirmation of what I've been presenting with these podcasts. Her word was about the importance of God's people diligently waiting on God, lingering with God, to know his heart, to gain knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. She wrote, quote, And when we linger before him and truly seek to know him and to receive his wisdom, from that place a people will arise in the earth with boldness of the Spirit, such as we have never seen before, to bring transformation. But right now the Lord is preparing, purifying, and positioning his people to move with him in the greatest ways we have ever seen in this new era. But to be found with our fingers in our ears saying, I don't want to hear, is a serious place to be found. Let us be found as people that embrace the wisdom and the ways of God, knowing that his ways are good, perfect, and higher than we could ever know, Isaiah 55. And not only do we find life and joy in his wisdom and his ways, but in that place, we partner with him in all he is doing on earth. I imagine Lana Bowser's words resonate with you as well. You know, I absolutely love spending time with God, contemplating the messages to record for this podcast, reasoning out the thoughts and the applicable scriptures, seeking him for his word and instruction. This is one way I linger in the presence of God to grow in my knowledge, or yada, of him and gain understanding and wisdom. And consistent with the generous economy of God, what I learn is not just for me. It's for me to share with others so they can also grow in knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. It's essential that we spend time with the Lord, seeking out the treasures He has for us to discover more and more about Him and His will. And beyond growing in these ways, we need to get our marching orders from Him. We are not to be some sequestered people simply gaining knowledge. The Bible is clear. Knowledge for knowledge's sake puffs up or makes us prideful. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. No, we need to demonstrate our knowledge. We need to demonstrate our faith so others see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. What we do in life as Christians should produce benefit for others and bring glory to God. Demonstrating our faith correctly will produce kingdom results. We've got more to cover on the topic of demonstrating faith, which I look forward to bringing you next week. One of the ways I want to encourage you to demonstrate your faith is to consider sponsoring a child through Child Care Worldwide. For just $40 a month, 
you can contribute to the education, food, clothing, and Christian instruction for a child in an impoverished community. You'll find the link to Child Care Worldwide in my show notes. I sincerely hope you will pray about what you can do to support Child Care Worldwide and be part of their work ministering to the needs of the impoverished, especially the children. And if you do become a sponsor with Child Care Worldwide, I want you to let me know so I can send you a small gift of thanks personally from me. Just use the email address that you'll find in the show notes. Thank you for joining me today. If this program has blessed you, I'd love to hear. My contact information is available for you in the show notes, so I'll be looking for your email or contact through social media. Faith to Live By is a division of Pamela Christian Ministries, LLC, a ministry that began in 1997 and has grown to offer many different goods and services. I invite you to visit my main website, PamelaChristianMinistries.com, and I ask you to support my ministry by availing of the sponsors listed in the show notes. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and also spread the gospel, and it also helps people learn how to best apply their Christian faith. Be sure to follow me on Facebook at Faith to Live By, on Twitter at PL Christian, and at LinkedIn and Parlor at Pamela Christian. If you'd like to be one of my insiders, subscribe to my complimentary bi-monthly e-newsletter. I offer you a choice of a free gift just in appreciation for your subscription. And lastly, visit my page for this show at faithtoliveby.com. There you can enjoy all the podcasts and see the different resources and downloads we offer. I hope you'll join me next week and tell your friends and family to listen right here on Faith to Live By, where we learn how to gain spiritual victory over life's issues. Next week will be part four of Demonstrating Faith, where we'll take an in-depth look at who we are as Christians and learn more about the power and authority we have, and most importantly, how to operate in that power and authority to gain the victory Christ secured for us on earth. Until next week, I'm Pam Christian, asking you to remember, Christ died for us. The least we can do is live for Him. 